1: At age 3, today's guest, Ed Hagem, was kidnapped by his father, driven cross-country, and told his mother was dead. Ed was bounced from foster homes to orphanages, living a daily struggle to survive. He joins us today to provide insight into what he learned from some of his life's defining moments. Ed is chairman of High Vista Strategies and has served as a senior executive at firms such as EF Hutton, Lehman Brothers, and other financial institutions. He is the author of the book On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. Welcome, Ed. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me.
1: So, Ed, you have such such an inspiring story because it really is a wonderful example of what each of us has the power to overcome. So let's start off by talking a little bit about what you experienced as a child and what led up to your father kidnapping you.
2: Well, Dad and, and I have learned a lot about people from writing this book. But my father basically came as a, a baby in 1900. And over the 18 or 20 years, became very, very successful. And uh, by 1929, had substantial fortune. In fact, a picture of the book shows him next to his own airplane. He had buildings in Manhattan and so forth. In 29 and 33, he lost everything, everything, and including his mother died, which was a a big, a, an enormous hit to him because he was very close to his mother. And as he said, in 33, he decided to either commit suicide or drive across country. And luckily, uh, I. Uh, uh, for me, my, lucky for me, he decided to drive across country. On the way across country, he stopped at a cousin's house. He was unwelcomed. And the cousin had had five children. Nobody wanted anybody to visit. and uh, anyway, during a two-week period, he fell in love with the fifth of the six the six children. And she was a young 18-year-old daughter. And shockingly, they got married. He went off to California. and uh, But he was a very difficult character. And having lost all of his money, really didn't ever recover from that. Uh, after three years of marriage, uh, and I guess the only happiness they had was my birth in 1936, and my mother, being a very young woman, had very difficult, had a difficult time dealing with my father's unusual habits. And by 1939, she had it, and she got, decided to get divorced, got custody of me, and took me from Los Angeles back to her family in St. Louis, where she wasn't terribly welcome. My father got visiting rights and $5 a, a week in alimony and child support. On the first Sunday, he visited me driving 1,800 miles from Los Angeles to St. Louis. He found me so-called unkept and decided instead of taking me to a movie or to the park, he got back on Highway 66, which is on the cover of our book, and drove me back to Los Angeles, told me that I'd never see my mother again. A few weeks later, I guess he told me my mother subsequently told me my mother died, called my mother and told her not to look for us. So he essentially kidnapped me, and that started a 15-year period of we uh, were living in, first in hotel rooms and motel rooms while he was at sea. He was a merchant marine. And then when the war started, uh, he had to go to sea full time, was commissioned as an officer in the merchant marines. I ended up in five foster homes during the period 1941 through 1946. I returned uh, uh, to my father. He came back on the East Coast. We flew across country. and uh, We spent a year together in the, the YMCA on 34th Street, where I learned in New York City, and then finally— in a hotel room in Coney Island, where I went to school. He had great difficulty finding land-based work, so he went back to sea, and I ended up in two orphanages. The first was uh, from from age 11 to to 14. When I aged out of that orphanage, my father totally disappeared, which is a little long story. Uh, And I became a ward of the state and was put in the second orphanage in Yonkers, New York, where it was close to a very good high school. I worked, put my head down, worked pretty hard, and was able to get my ticket out of my situation by getting a, an NRTC scholarship. That's a thumbnail of a of a an uh, Ijira trip that you know covered about fifteen to twenty different locations. And uh, I guess considering the foster home started with one that was very difficult and abusive and so forth, and ended one one which was very wonderful and warm and welcoming.
1: So you mentioned that one of your foster care experiences was difficult and that you suffered abuse and how did that impact you and and you said you had a, a good foster experience after that but what about then when you were in the orphanages what were those experiences like
2: all of these experiences required what required rites of passage and you know they, they were never easy i mean it, i mean just it's, it's hard for anybody to understand but going from one schoolyard to the next they going to one orphanage to the next you have to find your place and it, it it isn't. It is not easy. But once you do it, you gain a great capability, which is you're adaptable. You, you learn how how to find your way through difficult circumstances, become very self-reliant. In fact, in my book and in my conversations with people, I believe that disadvantages become advantages over a lifetime. If you look at my life, I and I remember reading something about you, Joan. Seeking change. I mean, I changed so many times my first 18 years. I not only, you know got used to change, I actually sought change and embraced change. And look, and in my business life, I always asked, you know, what's next? Because I felt that's very important. But since I uh, conquered change as a youngster, I was able to handle it through my entire life during good business experiences and some really bad ones. When I I went to one in particular was Lehman Brothers where I kind of did everything right for seven years, and it still turned out wrong. It's another thing I want to communicate to people. Sometimes you will do everything right for even a reasonable period of time and still will come out wrong. And you have to accept that. And my childhood allowed me to do that because even leaving the last, the last foster home, which was terrific, you know, I had to leave them and had to go back to my father, which was you know, a question mark. Having to adjust to that and accepting it really helped me into my entire life. Some of the things that you
1: were saying, while what you experienced was an extreme situation, I do agree with you that, that sometimes we may mollycoddle our children too much because we're not teaching them resiliency skills. If if we make life too easy, I think we do a not disservice real. to children.
2: Not, not real. That's not the way life is. I mean, I spent seven years at the Brothers, and I can give this document in the book, and I'm, I'm not embarrassed with saying I did a very good job in a very difficult situation. The boss and I didn't get along. I wouldn't back him because he wanted to push out the chairman. And he basically pushed me out. And so now, but, but in, there's another example of, of what you learn as a child. Try never to be a victim. It's extremely hard because if you use that energy, instead of using it as being a victim, energy on working on what's next, which is just as hard. In my case, at Lehman Brothers, I, just, I could have fought him. But instead that I looked at what's next, I found my dream job which was to be the chairman and CEO of a small investment bank. And really the best part of my life was the next 15 years.
1: I agree with everything you're saying. There were points in my life where I could have been a victim and I could have stayed there. And I just, I, I like to say that Nike has the best slogan ever, just do it, because you just do it. The, you know, there really right. isn't a, a secret to it. You just do it. But why do I mean, you, you think on, people like you?
2: focus like on the you... next thing rather than what's, what's past, because that's gone. I mean, that, that's over. And if you in many respects, if you fight it, it doesn't do any good or if you if you're annoyed at somebody or you or you try to take it out of somebody, all you're doing is using energy that can be used in a positive vein and going forward and looking and by the way, looking what's next not easy, and you ever used it there's a lot of energy required to find out what's next what's right for you.
1: Do you think that the experiences you've had that they help you appreciate the good times more?
2: Well, I ask people to to try to establish the principles early in life, and the one principle I have now is my age is gratitude. I am truly grateful for having the chance to live the American dream and all the things that have been given to me. Yes, I I think that's very important. That's another problem you have with people. You know, unfortunately, they've done well. The children don't have quite the gratitude that I have. I mean, I I can look back at my life and say I've been very, very lucky and I'm very grateful for everything that's that's happened to me.
1: You write about four P's and, and you teach these. What are the P's?
2: Well, you see, I contend one of the only constant in your life, and I think maybe you'll agree with this too, is your inner voice. And I think it's very important you develop a language with your inner voice. You just don't jump around all the time. Or like the old Chinese medicine cabinet where you have drawers you put things into. And I have come up with what I consider to be a language. Four Ps. Find your passions. Find your principles. Find your partners. And then find your plans. Finding your passions is the most important thing, and that really starts, you know, with yourself. I, I have There's a, four other words which I use, it, self, family, work, and community. Those are the four buckets of life. The four Ps are poured into those four buckets. You find your passion. Find what really turns you on, what really excites you, what makes you get out of bed in the morning, you know. And passion is an overused word. It's a combination of your talents, your interests, your life's traditional likes, and the context of your life. You know, what period of history do you live in? Because you can have certain kinds of passions have to fit into that context. My move from high school, when they first start forming, you know, math, science, baseball, basketball, and girls. And over a lifetime, those morphed. And I recommend that people as they keep track of their passions and how they change. College, you know, math and science turned into engineering. Uh, baseball and basketball, after my freshman year, turned into intramurals and extracurricular activities. And I found in extracurricular activities... Basically, I found my passion. I started a humor magazine, and I put 30 people together. The president was against it. The provost was against it. The head librarian against it. But putting people together to accomplish a task, solve a problem, produce a product, became my passion. And inside that passion, I found what I really got excited about was helping people do better than they thought they could, have them exceed their own expectations. So I found my passion. And find, find your principles. And I found my principles early because I went to a Catholic school. And I was taught the golden rule and the first commandments with the golden rule. The nuns were very strict. And that sort of set my path. But all through my life, I've collected principles. So I could, I have them on yellow pads. I hang them on my wall when I find them. And all through life, they can help you. One which really helped me during my business life was I found early on that if you don't care who gets the credit, you can accomplish almost anything. And I think that's you know one of the things that I have hanging on my wall now. And and then, of course, as I said, my last principle now is gratitude. Then find your partners. Find someone to love. Find someone you can share your life with. Find someone who will support you and who you can support. And, uh, you know, I find that in today's world, more than also in my world, collaboration is vital. I find I'm only as good as the people I surround myself with. I spend a lot of time on partners. I have a whole experience that groups of partners are, Life partners. And then, of course, you know, I found in my lifetime, you look at my book a lot, like, I had good partners, I succeeded. When I had no partners or bad partners, I failed. Find me plans. You know, I, I, I was accosted by one of, my, one of my talks to a college group, and guy said, You give me a lot of ideas, too many ideas. That Tell me one thing to do. And I said, Sit down right now and physically write down your plans, where you want to go, and how you think you might get there. And while you're doing it, think about your lifetime. And think about the trends, think about the cycles, think about the waves that basically you can catch during your life. Try to think of some way of getting your wind at your back. Read some of the really important people's biographies and see that you recognize that most of them had the wind at their back for at least part of their life. I'll use two examples. I took over this small investment bank in 1983, and over a 15-year period, we grew it over 20-fold, from 20 million in revenues to over almost a half a billion and we bought it and sold it and bought it again and sold it again finally to a, to a Dutch bank, and which really brought closure in my business life. And people gave me a lot of credit for it, and we did a good job. But I had to win it in my back. The market during that period was up 10 times. I'll use another example, which is totally different. A friend of mine who was a, graduated in surgery and, and back focused on back surgery decided the real demand, the real latent demand for back surgery was in Africa. So he went to Ethiopia and went to the... Uh, Mother Teresa Clinic, and opened a, a back surgery ma- uh, capability there. He now, if you look at his brochure, you know, hundreds of smiling faces over a lifetime. He saved their lives by solving curvature of the back. And basically, those are the kinds, he had the wind this his back. There's huge demand for that. You know, there was huge demand for my particular product. But you can find it in today's world, you know, AI and robotics, digitization, nanoscience. There's just so many of these waves. Find one that excites you and get on it. That's my four Ps. Uh, I also think you might have, if you get all the four Ps right, you might end up getting the fifth P, which is purpose.
1: When you were starting to explain about the four Ps, you said something very interesting where you talked about the importance of the inner voice. And I think at the heart of of achieving everything you just described to us, we have to pay attention to the way we speak to ourselves. You know, we talk to ourselves in a way we would never speak to another person human being. So what is your inner voice like? Are you a
2: cheerleader for yourself? Oh that that's exactly what I'm saying. This, these four Ps are piled into my inner voice and, and when I got in trouble many, many times, either my own fault or other people's fault, my voice said to me, You can do it, Ed. And that's the that's the mantra you want to build in. And you know I, I always I try to get rid of young people to have them reach and stretch. Because there's only two results when you do something. One is success you know, it's a learning experience. And early failure is a gift. You know, and you will see it in my book. When I failed at age 35, it was an enormous gift for me. It, it put me, it, it focused me on what I could do and what I couldn't do. But the inner voice is very important. It's got to be supportive, and it has to come. It has to basically say to you all the time, "At a boy, give you, give yourself credit." Also, because you know, if you're giving out credit to other people, which you you should do in your lifetime, somebody's got to give you credit. And your inner voice can do it. Ed, you did a good job. Ed, you did okay, but Ed, you can do this, or Ed, you know, yeah. you're heading in the wrong direction. Let's go back and look at look at some of the things you said about yourself. You know, you really shouldn't be here at this point in time. And that's really a you know, we talk to ourselves, as you said. Much more than people think. And it's the only constant. You have parents at the beginning, they pass out, you know, then you have a spouse, and even, you know, that, that lasts a long time, possibly. Sometimes it doesn't. But your inner voice is always there. And if you develop a good relationship with it, you know, it really is helpful. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of that early on. And people don't recognize it, they really don't.
1: And I also agree with you when you were talking about failure, because I think that's the biggest roadblock we put in place for ourselves. We have this fear of this thing called failure, but I've eliminated the word failure in my life. I just look at everything that doesn't work out the way I want it
2: to as a learning experience. No, no, It is a learning experience. The fact is, when you reach too far, you learn something that you can really use. I'll take my sophomore year. I decided between pure science and engineering. So I, instead of taking the engine, I was an engineering course. I, I took this physicist course instead of the engineering physics course. And I was in a room full of physicists, and I figured well, I was, maybe I'd be a physicist. I found out in six months I didn't want to be a physicist, and I couldn't handle it either. Because Not that I wasn't smart enough. I just wasn't willing to put the time and energy in because it took more time and energy than I could really expend. It took away from everything else I was doing. I got a D plus in the course. I got out of it back in the you know in, in engineering physics and I did just fine. But I you find out by reaching. And I, I'm gonna say, I I tell young people never waste the summer and get out on your own and do something. You know, my sophomore year I hitchhiked up to the Saint Lawrence Seaway and got on a team of blasting people, you know, and it's the great experiences ever different when you're on your own. And then, you know, today it's very hard. You can't recreate my background. Nobody can be an orphan or working foster homes, but you can go out in the summertime and work in a, you know, in a hospital in Kentucky, or you can, you go to, you go to become a bartender in, in, in Banff Springs, Canada. I mean, I, I, these adventures that I had a lot of them are very, very important adventures and work experiences where you, you're just a name. You go you go up to the St. Lawrence Seaway, you bang on someone's door and say, I want a job. He says, get out of here. And you say, no, I want a job. And you get one.
1: You know, I, I love the title of your book, On the Road Less Traveled, because when you look at your life, you're doing things that you probably never imagined you would be doing. I know I'm doing things that I never imagined I would be doing. I, I was a middle-aged Wife and mother who started this brand at a time when most people think you know you're starting to slow down. I was ramping up. Anything is possible.
2: It is. It is. Well, that's the that's the main message in the book, and that's and I'm giving a graduation speech, and someone said, "What's your main message?" I said, "Anything is possible." It really is. A little bit of hard hard work and the scope of your imagination is your only limitation. I mean, in today's world, it's actually you have much more freedom now than we've ever had. But looking back historically. You know, the the amount of scholarship money, the lack of prejudice, you know, the ability in a a stroke of key where you can contact markets all over the world. I think today there's more opportunity than ever before for young people, and that's what I want to get across. But anything is possible. I I really believe that. And education is the solution. I mean, you have to continue to be educated and continue to take on what's new, what's going on. And I, you know, no matter what I do, and I've become a pain in the neck in most of the boards I sit on, I... I founded a golf club up in Nantucket and I always say every year we got to do a little something new. You know, maybe it's a terrace, maybe it's changing the golf, the, the locker room or adding something to the short game. But I think that's what exciting, but it's important. You cannot sit still. And I get a, I get a kick out of you in your experience. There's no time that's too late to start something new. Look at me. I mean, I I'm now doing something I never thought I would do. I was never a great writer. And and I, I and, and I spent my entire life under the mantra of being happy is to be hidden. Oh, I was a Wall Street. I was a strategist, a pretty well-known strategist. But when I got called by a radio station or a TV station, I would stay out of the public eye completely. I never wanted to be public, because I always felt that publicity was the next step before jail. And here I am now
3: <laughs> you know, on radio
2: two or three times a week, television once or twice a week. You know, getting out, and trying to get my name known—something I never thought I would do. And, you know, it's I'm doing it. And as you said, it's never too late.
1: And when you travel that road, like you said, there are wonderful surprises there. You you, you end up doing things that you didn't even know you would like doing.
2: Oh, I'm having fun meeting you. I mean, I'm having more fun with this than I ever thought I would have. It's, it's exceeding all my expectations. And I'm doing some good. I got a letter from somebody's mother the other day. And she said her daughter decided, because of my conversation, decided to go to college. I mean, you know. That pays for everything I've been doing for the last year. I mean, that just, just that one experience of one young lady deciding instead of, you know, not going to work, she's going to go to college and, and find her passion. That really, that excites me. And that pays yeah. for all the things I'm trying to do.
1: I don't think there's a greater gift than being able to make a living doing something you love that actually serves some good in the world.
2: That, that's it, that's hard to find. I mean, it, I, and I didn't find it on You know, when you're working on Wall Street, that's not the case. You know, you're not doing that much good for the world. You're out there trying to make a living and so forth. And I must say, I pivoted somewhere in my 40s. There was a second golden rule in my life besides doing to others, which was he who has the gold rules. I had to, to gain financial stability. I had to seek out financial resources. But in my 40s, when I'd done a reasonable job of that, I shifted from seeking financial rewards to freedom. And, and I went, instead of going to a prestigious uh, Wall Street firm, I went to a very small, unknown one. But there I had freedom. It was my shop, and I could do what I wanted, I could create what I wanted. And I swapped the, the finest dining room in Wall Street and my office overlooking the, the harbor and, and Statue of Liberty for a dining room which was two hot plates and a conference room, and my office overlooked the wall of another building. But I loved it. And as you say, if you love your work, you're really not working. And I was doing good, too, because I was hiring people, giving people a chance to spread their wings. It was really a lot of fun. I had a great time. We hired over 800 people in, over a period of uh, 15 years.
1: The book is On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. If you'd like to get more information about Ed and his work, you can visit edhagem.com Ed, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, well, thank you so much for the conversation and for the very good questions.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
4: Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com.
1: An invitation to appear on a radio show or podcast provides you with the opportunity to showcase your knowledge while promoting yourself and your business. It can elevate you as an expert, but only if you make a good impression. In my training program, It's Your Time to Shine, I empower you to make media appearances more impactful. You work hard to get the booking, so don't waste the opportunity because of a lack of skills. To learn more, visit cyacyl.com slash mediatraining. Time for To Your Health. Joining me today to talk about how hypnosis can be an effective way to quit smoking is Mary Beth Battaglia, a certified clinical hypnosis and sound practitioner and the founder of Metro Hypnosis Center. Mary offers online hypnosis to people around the world. She's the author of the book, Transformation Through Hypnosis, Relax, Clear Your Mind, and Step Into Your Power. Welcome, Mary. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Joan, for having me. So Mary, smoking causes damage to the body, which can lead to long-term health problems. But it's a hard habit to break because tobacco contains the addictive chemical nicotine. As with heroin or other addictive drugs, the body and mind quickly get used to the nicotine and cigarettes. Why do you believe this is
5: an especially important time for people to quit smoking? That's a great question, Joan. And this is an important time to quit smoking because we have COVID-19. And... COVID-19 can nearly double the rate of the uh, COVID-19 progressing in people who smoke. So that's really why it's always an important time for your health with smoking because it creates uh, cancers, heart disease, strokes, diabetes. But now having the facts, in the UC of San Francisco that shows any smoker that they did the research of about 12,000 people, the uh, progression of disease and the progression going to go into a critical mode of the disease per smokers was nearly double.
1: And that's really important information, Mary, because we're all looking for ways to avoid COVID, and this is something that's within our control. So let's talk a little bit about when someone wants to quit. That person makes the decision. What are some of the challenges that a person will experience
5: when quitting? Right. And one of the things you mentioned is that it's an addiction. That's that's why smoking sometimes is challenging. It's a habit and an addiction with the nicotine. So sometimes when people quit, they, and everyone's different because the nicotine seems to affect different people. Some people I work with have really not a lot of side effects, just like a craving, but other people go through like a detox in their body um, the sweats and all of that so everyone does that differently but so they just have to realize that um, they need that commitment and but to be aware that there will be some cravings or strong urges for it and that's where hypnosis comes in to help you deal with that to give you the tools to fight it and become the non-smoker
1: so how does that happen mary how does
5: hypnosis help so um, typically when i work with someone we first create a script about becoming a non-smoker, because it's very individual for everyone. So yes, we can have a generic for people to use, but if you really want to get to your trigger points, um, I actually under- get to understand your habits. Um, what's When are you smoking the most in different locations? And then we create the script on that. So we create like a scenario, you becoming a non-smoker, we add positive affirmations um, and it gives the motivation to quit smoking. So at the end of that session, I read that to you in hypnosis. So we plant the seeds of you becoming a non-smoker. And then you listen to that recording um, that, of the script that I create for you. So every day you're getting that reinforcement and the, and the support, because that's what it is. People need support when they're quitting smoking. And then each session built upon the next, we try to understand what the cigarette is giving you. What's what's your reasons that are the real triggers so stress is one of the biggest triggers and that's one of the things that it can help with so I teach people uh self-hypnosis to help you stay strong if you feel that need to smoke and that you can push that craving away how effective is hypnosis in getting this done Hypnosis is very effective. I can't say it's a hundred percent because it's gonna depend on your motivation, your commitment. But I'd say for the most part what I see in my practice is at least ninety percent effective. But I always check in with people. I kind of assess people where they are on their journey of quitting smoking and look for a certain level of motivation. So I look for like a six or more motivation to quit smoking, um so that they are doing it at the right time to succeed.
1: So it basically helps get to the root cause of why
5: someone smokes. Right. And that's my, my uh, program with hypnotherapy. It's we're really trying to understand what that connection is to the cigarette. What's the cigarette doing? And, you know, if you're a non-smoker, you may not understand that that cigarette is, is like an old friend. So it's actually sometimes some sadness comes in the sessions because you're losing an old friend that's been there for all the good times and all the bad times. It's always been there. So there's an emotional component as well, which I find in a lot of sessions, because, you know, not even a person has been there for people like a cigarette has been there. So it's releasing that and releasing that connection, and filling yourself up with more of the positive and, and your own support and that you can handle anything on your own.
1: Mary, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more information about Mary and her work, you can visit her website, MetroHypnosisCenter.com. Once again, Mary, thank you. Thank you, Joan. We'll be right back.
0: This is WFNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. You have the material things you thought you wanted, the expensive car, big house, designer clothes, and yet you're not happy. The one thing missing is joy. Today's guest, Andrea Dawn, reveals yoga's best-kept secrets to help you live bold with an open heart. In her book, No Mat Required, Andrea demystifies yoga philosophy and distills it into five simple truths or seeds. Andrea is a life coach, yoga instructor, and creator of After Dawn, a brand that empowers people to wake up to their life and infinite potential. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm so excited to be here. Andrea, you entitled your book, No Mat Required. Why did you select that title and what does it mean?
6: Well, I selected that title because I believe that in our Western culture, yoga has been labeled as something that we go to do on a mat in a practice room somewhere instructed by a teacher. And it was my desire to reveal that that is not actually all that is yoga. And there is so much more to yoga that can help you in your life right now, right today. And you do not need a mat to practice it. Well,
1: and I think your teachings are so important, Andrea, because so many people are really struggling today. In your book, you write about what you call five simple truths or seeds. What are these five seeds?
6: Yes, these seeds are the first limb of yoga, so yoga has eight limbs, and in this first limb, it's giving us these five seeds. And the first one is called ahimsa, or what could be known as love or non-violence. The second one is satya, or what could be known as truth. The third one is asteya, or what could be known as non-stealing, or I like to call energy integrity. The fourth is brahmacharya, and brahmacharya is non-excess or we could say balance. And the fifth is a parigraha, or non-possessiveness.
1: And so what happens in our lives when we cultivate or water these seeds?
6: Well, it brings us into alignment. And so what happens when we start to gain awareness about what our thoughts are doing and our feelings and what's generating those feelings, we can start to see where the misalignments are. And so all of these seeds provide points for awareness for us to see where our thoughts and our words and our actions are out of alignment so that we can then begin to make those shifts and changes, which will then equal more joy in our lives. Well, and that's why
1: I do the work I do, Andrea, because I believe that we are a sum of the components the mind, body, soul, and spirit, and that each one of these areas needs to be in balance so that we can be a healthy and happy whole person. And I love when you say that the journey of discovery is also the recovery of our passion aligned with our purpose.
6: Yeah, yeah, yes. And I appreciate the work that you do, Joan. Um, so very honored to be on this show and to be relating with your audience. Um, yes, because when when we think about everything we need, and we're, we're already here, and there's there's a a quote in a book and I forget what it is, but it's about us being the acorn. We're all oak trees and and that all comes from the acorn. And there's just things piled on top of that, that we need to remove so that we, that our acorn can receive the light and the, all of the love and the input that it needs to be able to grow into that oak tree that we are.
1: I've heard you say that we can learn to speak our truth regardless of what others think. And so many of us, Andrea, are afraid to do this. Is, is there anything you can offer to us to help us get started on this practice?
6: Well, I think first it's owning your truth. So it's becoming clear to yourself about what is your truth. So I would say a great question to start with yourself is, why am I doing what I'm doing? And is what I'm doing going to bring quality to my moment? If my life is made up of my moment, that's all I actually really have is my present moment. That's, that's what I'm living. That's what I have control over. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I saying what I'm saying? What do I really think about this? If I can get clear about that, that can start to give me the permission and maybe the confidence to be able to bring that to light to others.
1: And I think when we get clear about our truth, we then can live in a less reactionary way, we can live with more intention.
6: Absolutely, and I think that that becomes the the ability to respond versus react. So there's almost like a pause now in between what we do and say. We have this moment of clarity and awareness um, where it isn't it is no longer a programmed response. That's something we've been doing just because we've been doing because it's habit. We've now become aware, and so there is that pause we can take between what happens and then the way that we actually want to respond to it which is a cultivated skill.
1: Yeah, and becoming more mindful, it helps us then to break those old patterns because we're we're operating less from our subconscious programming.
6: Absolutely. And, and that's what all of these seeds will help us do as well, is to really look at our programming and to see when we, when we start to ask that question, why am I doing what I'm doing? Am, am I doing it because my mother did it that way, because her mother did it that way, because her mother did it that way? And, and do I want to do it that way? And so, it, you know, it gives us the, the permission to be able to make choices for ourselves and set the standards and values to what we actually believe, not what we've been told to believe. So
1: Andrew, the the things we've been talking about, knowing our truth, finding our passion, living with intention, changing patterns, how does all of this relate back to yoga?
6: Well, yoga is actually a system for enlightenment. It's a system to joy. And that's actually yoga means yoking or union of body, mind, and spirit. The physical aspect is really because yoga asks us to sit and go inward in meditation, And so the physical aspect was developed so our bodies would become strong enough so that we could sit without pain, because the pain takes us into the exterior world, and yoga's asking us to go inside. So that's really the whole reason the asana or the physical practice was designed, was so that we could be able to sit and go inward. And so it's just just, um, a confusion of what it actually is. So yoga is actually everything we're talking about versus the physical practice is just one little part of it to help us get there. And I think that's an
1: important point that you're making, because I know when someone hears the word yoga, they tend to just immediately think, oh, I can't get my body in those positions. So this is something I can never do.
6: I say to that person, yoga is something you can do right now, every day, in every in every single thing that you do. It is Yoga is yes, it is a practice and it is also a state of being. It is that union. It is, it is, or the question I like to ask is how much of you is doing what you're doing? Is part of you thinking about argument you had with your husband? Is part of you thinking about what you're going to make for dinner? When we're scattered, then we are not in yoga or union. But when all of us is doing what we're doing, then we are in yoga or in union. And so, the, that practice is continually coming back to that question: How much of me is doing this, and can all of me be doing this? And that's when we're practicing yoga. So it can be doing anything in your daily life.
1: And I like the way you describe it. It's it's a state of being. So if you would like to learn more about this book, no mat required, using the wisdom of yoga to create a joyful life, or if you would like to learn more about Andrea and her work, you can visit After Dawn Yoga. Dot .com andrea in about 30 seconds or less what's the takeaway
6: the takeaway is that peace and joy are available to you right now and you don't have to make giant leaps all you have to do is take one little baby step every single day and you can do this it's for you this is for this is a practice for everybody and so i just encourage and and hope that you are inspired to take one baby step today in maybe asking the question of why am I doing what I'm doing. And you know, Joan, one more thing I'd like to add about all of that is that I do life coaching uh, and I use yoga philosophy with the life coaching. So not only are we working with all of these mental aspects, but we are also working with the physical aspects. So we take all of these pieces and put them together to heal the whole person. So life coaching with me is a bit different than with others because we are using yoga philosophy as our guide.
1: Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joan. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us.
4: We'll be right back. Everyone starts something new with good intentions, but how often have you tried to establish a new healthy habit only to give up at the first little hiccup? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, a lifestyle app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. I get it. I've been there. Establishing new habits is hard. And just when you think this is hard, you read something discouraging like it takes 21 days to establish a new habit. 21 days, I'll never make it. Well, I wish I could tell you there's a new magic pill which makes new habits stick. Quick and easy. Sorry, you're gonna have to do the work. But I do have a way to make that work a little easier. The reason we give up when we're learning something new is because breaking old patterns of behavior and establishing new ones produces stress. It's your response to stress that sends you backtracking to your old ways. Life is stressful, and no one needs to add to their stress. So what's my solution? Relaxation through sound meditation. I know what you're thinking. That's something new, and learning something new is just going to produce more stress. Well, guess what? You don't have to learn how to meditate with sound. You just set aside 15 to 20 minutes each day and let the sound and music do the work for you. To learn more about sound meditation, sound healing, healing music, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention.
3: With the end of another school year approaching, you may be wondering what the future holds for your child when it comes to college. We all know that a college education doesn't come cheap. Hi, my name is Kay Toby, financial services professional with the Fortis Agency. Here are some tips to consider before preparing to save for your child's college education. Number one, start saving today. It is never too soon for parents to start saving into a college fund for their children. One of the biggest mistakes made is thinking that you have plenty of time before you have to sign a big check for school. However, if you begin saving early, you will give your your child more options and feel better prepared for the future. Number two, college saving accounts. Ask your advisor about the different savings vehicles used specifically for college. Find out if a 529 plan, Coverdell education savings account, or a non-college specific account is best for your situation. For more information on saving for college, send me an email at k.toby@thefortisagency.com. At
1: You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. You've made a substantial financial investment in getting the project done, and you have a beautiful publication with your name on the cover. So how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, a resource guide created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life includes the work of some of the most inspirational and influential authors in the world. Shouldn't you be there too? Let's get started. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Thanks for staying with us. Our next guest, Esther Pippoly, helps families navigate life's difficult moments. She's the owner and founder of Loss of Life Advocates, also known as Lola. Her company provides confidential concierge grief support to families business owners and employers, helping them navigate the operational side of loss. Welcome, Esther. Thank you so much for joining us.
7: Uh, Thanks for having me, Joan.
1: Esther, when we experience a loss, we often look to the outside world to help us heal. We rely on other people, and while support is very important, do you believe healing is an inside job? Absolutely,
7: Joan. I think that what people sometimes miss is that Um, it's immediate when your loved one passes away that some type of grief counseling or grief support comes into play and people are recommending it for you. However, what's important is that you start looking on the inside of yourself to say, you know, what are the things that I was doing with my loved one prior that were habits that were things that were daily rituals that I need to now start looking within myself to fill those spots. And how can I fill them with things that are healthy, that are good for me, that are um, restorative, and that you can find some sense of peace around? And I think that sometimes when people are looking at loss, they think of, you know, I've lost this this friend, this loved one. Um, But there were patterns and things about that relationship that come into play. And so that's something that you have to resolve within yourself to find a space to find something new to fill it with, a new pattern, a new habit, a new hobby. Um, So that you're kind of finding joy in a new way and filling it in that space that used to be um, dedicated to your loved one. And maybe you dedicate that new stuff to your loved one and their memory um, of filling it. So it could be gardening. It could be um, sewing, quilting. It could be hikes. It could be just going for a walk, Um, maybe doing something with pets and volunteering. But when you start with yourself on the inside, you're having to fill those hollow those hollow, you know, places within you. And I think that that's really important. Um, and sometimes a grief support person or a grief counselor can help you get to that point. But really, when you sit back and you're thinking about what is this loss I'm feeling, it usually is the normal things that you used to do with the loved one that is passed on.
1: I agree with you because I think when you start to rely too much on external people or things, you just become dependent On someone or something else to make you happy
7: exactly and I think that they um, all serve a good purpose for you in the healing process but it's also you know something that you have to be able to be comfortable with in your alone time and I think that's where people get really confused and that's when the sadness creeps in and so it really is um, thinking of loss as it wasn't just the individual that passed away it were all it was all those patterns and things um, but you do during the day and your therapist or your grief support group is not there with you during those moments. As you
1: just mentioned, a few things that we can do that can help us to heal from the inside. But can you recommend a way that we can get started on this process? Because when we're in grief, you know, the last thing we want to do is try to look within. So how do we get started?
7: You know, I, I always tell people, you know, what were the things that you did, you know, write down or journal the things that you did with your loved one, whether it was making that morning phone call if you're calling a parent, um, or if you are living with a spouse, you know, what were the things that you were doing, for a lot of people if they were taking care of somebody that was terminally ill, there was a lot of time spent with them. So having to really look at that space and say, wow, I really spent so much time with my loved one all the way to the end, now I have a full day, so maybe you start building some structure in, whether it's getting up in the morning, going for a walk doing a meditation, taking up yoga, but finding things for yourself. For some people that go back to work, it's also finding new meaning at work to make sure that you've got some structure set up for you because maybe you were taking daily phone calls to check in. So maybe you find somebody new, that you say, you know what, if you don't mind, I'm going to take round robin and my friends and call them. But really it is um, journaling and really writing down how you spent time with
1: that loved one yeah i agree i I think structure is important because i know in my own life whenever i am sad about something when i have too much time on my hands it seems to make things worse so like you're saying to start to schedule in some things to you know maybe at first just keep yourself busy but within time i think that will start to transform into some type of things
7: that give you passion and joy Exactly, and it will take time. And for some people, um, they may have already been doing maybe yoga during or some type of meditation while their loved one was transitioning or or going through a long term illness. Um, So maybe they go back and they they really use that as a tool to help them heal and move forward.
1: Esther, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Esther and her work, you can visit LossOfLifeAdvocates.com. Or as always, to hear more from Esther, you can visit our website. C-Y-A-C-Y-L dot com slash Esther. Recently, I was flipping through a toy catalog, shopping for a gift for a French child, when I stumbled upon an item that had brought hours of enjoyment to my children. It's a square box, that has different shapes cut out into each side with matching pieces. The goal of the toy is for children to fit each piece into its corresponding hole, thus learning to recognize shapes and how to fit like things together. My boy spent hours placing the various shapes into their respective holes. Most times, the pieces fit together with ease, but on occasion, they would work tirelessly trying to make the wrong piece fit into the wrong hole. An oval and a circle, a square and a triangle, a rectangle and a square. As I reminisced about them sitting on the floor working at this task, I began to think about how this activity mimics what we do throughout our life, work, to make the pieces fit. Hi, this is Joan Herman, here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. Sometimes our choices fit perfectly, but other times, no matter how much energy we expend, they just don't fit. How many times have you been in a friendship or romance that didn't work out? In most situations when the breakup occurred, anger, heartbreak, and disappointment soon followed. Then blame. Someone must be at fault. Someone was wrong. You tried so hard, so why couldn't it survive? Instead of being consumed with anger and resentment, did you ever stop and think that maybe, just maybe, it was simply a wrong fit and that no one is to blame. Like the pieces in the toy, each of us has an individual design derived from life experiences. We are each as unique as a circle, square, triangle, or octagon. When we make the right match, everything fits perfectly. But when we have the wrong pieces, it doesn't work no matter how hard we push or on what angle. It would be ridiculous to say something is wrong with a circle because it didn't fit in the square. We recognize the shapes as being different, so why do we make those claims about people? Why do we assign blame to a person and then spend the rest of our life being angry and resentful thinking about what could have been? Perhaps a new perspective would be to view each of us as the pieces of the toy, unique with our own characteristics, perfect in our design, but not always a fit. Perhaps looking at life experiences in this way may make it easier to let go and stop assigning blame. It may enable us to forgive and move forward. So the next time you experience the loss of a valued relationship, rather than being consumed with anger and bitterness, just release it. Try to view yourself and the other person as shapes, different from each other, but with their own purpose, beauty, and value. Perfect in their individuality, but they just don't fit. Thanks for spending these minutes with me. For more information and empowering tools, visit joanherman.com. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative change your attitude change your life we believe that knowledge is power take what you've learned apply it and live your best life now